Welcome to the Bodacious Women in Cannabis podcast, the show where the bold and brilliant women cannabis business leaders share their journey and their expertise. Here's your host, Susan Burns. Hi, this is Susan Burns, your podcast host and on-call lawyer and business partner. I'm focused on supporting women in the business of cannabis on their journeys to success. In this podcast, we delight in showcasing women in cannabis and in particular, in particular, highlighting their bodaciousness. Today, we are thrilled to be talking with Frederica Easley, and she is the Director of Strategic Initiatives for the People's Ecosystem. I cannot wait for this conversation. Welcome, Frederica. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love that word, bodacious. I just like saying it. <laughs> I do too. What? Well, let's start there. Let's do this one a little backwards. Normally, I ask about your background, but what um, what resonates with you about bodacious? It's just full. You know, it's a fun word. It's full, um, and there's so many ways that you can take it, right? I think it it has a, a connotation um, that can differ depending on uh, the road that you've traveled in life, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fun word, right? And so I just think it means like full bodied um, and not just like your physical body, but whatever body. So it's like body of work, you know, body of... Um, of, of energy, just space being taken up. So that's what comes to mind when I hear bodacious. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. So um, we're going to talk about your bodaciousness in the cannabis industry. And I would love to know, I've been reading about you. You have a very impressive background. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing today as the um, Director of Strategic Initiatives and about how you got there and it's your journey in the cannabis, as a, especially as a bodacious woman in the cannabis industry. Okay. Well, um, specifically in my role with the People's Ecosystem, which is an LBGTQIA woman-led and owned um, business in the cannabis space, um, I have to point that out because that's very important. There is, as you already know, um, just a huge um, lack of representation, you know, in terms of diversity at C-suite and ownership levels. Uh, and it's actually declining in, in cannabis, right? So 90 plus percent of, of companies um, are owned by white men. And when you look at C-suite levels, you know, it is abysmal. So I always have to start with that. I work with an amazing an amazing team. I work with and am led by amazing women, um, women of color, Latinx and um, um, Latinx descent, as well as uh, Filipino, excuse me. Um, but in my role as director of strategic initiatives, what I do is I look at policy, I look at rules, I look at regulations with a lens of equity. And so specifically, I'm looking for areas where language can be strengthened and or where uh, language will intentionally or unintentionally um, repurpose harm, right? And so there's a difference between theory and practice, um, what we see, what you see in any space um, is that 
words don't always match how things rolled out, roll out or how people are actually able to engage with programs, policies, um, and positions. And so what I try and do is um, just bring the background that I have into a space so that as we're looking at the words, I'm thinking, well, how will this look? You know, will this actually do more harm or do additional harm as opposed to the good that, you know, that we're hoping will come from it? Awesome. So, and I just want to clarify one term in the beginning of the interview because legally cannabis includes marijuana and hemp. The difference be, being the amount of THC that's allowed in hemp is three tenths of a percent, and if it's more, it's legally defined as marijuana. When you're talking about adult use cannabis, you're referring to the marijuana product. Yeah, and, right? and I actually like to use cannabis, right? Because marijuana is a word that. No, I, I understand that people like to use that term for a variety of reasons, but just the legal definition is. Yes. You know. Yeah is otherwise so but you're when you're talking about cannabis you're talking about the marijuana industry yes i'm, I'm yes i'm talking about marijuana cb uh i'm sorry cannabis weed you know reefer all of those terms yes yeah okay thank you so first of all how have you been tracking and how have you identified like the stats that you just gave 90 percent plus or um of C-suite positions are held by white men. Yeah, so there are a number of reports that have come out um, in regards to this. So let's see, um, just off the top of my head, and some of these I can I can supply if you if you'd like. Um, but you know, if we're talking about like VC capital. I know Crunchbase comes out with regular reports um, that specifically uh, that specifically looks at. VC capital that is given and at which stage of entrepreneurial development it's given. And now this doesn't, they don't um, single out cannabis businesses, but this is just in terms of overall capital, right? And so you can kind of deduct from those numbers what the realities can be around, um, around such a unknown and um, market that is in infancy, such as cannabis. Um, Leafly, I believe, um, had a report recently um, that touched on specifically like C-suite and ownership in cannabis and what those, um, what those stats look like. Um, I do not have them at my fingertips right now, but it's something uh, it's easy for me to, to pull up for you. If, if you want to uh, send a couple of links that we can put in our show notes, I think that would be great for any of our listeners that want to follow up for their own, you know, for their own personal use or business use. What have you been, have you been finding um, certain equity initiatives uh, work or, and others don't, or what have you, how are you approaching this and how do you advance mission of sort of leveling the playing field, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I would say as states are regulating, so I, I try to be very specific and intentional about the words that I'm using. We know that cannabis is still not legal. We are still Schedule One federally, but there are states that are regulating and decriminalizing. And so as states are regulating, um, whether it be medical and or adult use, there are there have been some states that 
uh, I would say New York. I would bring up New York as an example that from day one, at least have language in, um, in the legislation that prioritizes looking at equity, that prioritizes at least acknowledging and addressing harms that have come because of cannabis prohibition and specifically the war on drugs. There are states that are playing catch up. So I would say like Massachusetts, Colorado, um, you know, those are states that their their efforts to regulate did not start with addressing those things. But as as things progressed and as advocates, you know, raised their voice and brought attention to issues that were that were um, coming up, they are now doing the work right over the last maybe year or two have been doing the work. I don't know that there is a state I would feel comfortable pointing a finger to and saying they have absolutely gotten it right. I think that what has to be done is that states have to be nimble. They have to create programs and create processes where they are able to pivot when necessary, right? I think there's going to be several years of trial and error that are still ahead of us. And so we have to make sure that one, we constantly have feedback. We have feedback from the individuals who are actually utilizing or who want to engage with these programs in terms of how those things are working. Um, And then on the regulation side or the regulatory side that things are not that we're not caught up in so much red tape and that it's not so difficult to actually make changes and adjustments accordingly um so i'll give you an example in colorado one of the things specifically denver if i'm recalling correctly one of the things that they did was offer exclusivity for equity applicants specifically in um, with their delivery license now this is beautiful, right? Like on one hand you say like, oh, wow, this is something that for, you know, a a set number of years, equity, you know, those who have been impacted by this war on drugs are going to be able to get in, figure themselves out, you know, kind of like plant their flags, if you will. However, they were, essentially their hands were tied behind their backs because they're not able to, to deliver their own products. They're not able to create and deliver their own products, which means that they are, um, you know, at, you know, at the whim of retail operators. And when you looked at retail operators and what that makeup was, there were not many people of color. And that's not to say that, you know, just people of color would be the only ones to support other people of color, but there, there was some disparity there. Okay. And there was also not a program that was incentivized. So there was no incentive for these retail operators to actually contract with these delivery companies to do that, right? You had some areas outside of Denver, like Aurora, where they had delivery, but the retail operators, you know, they controlled their own delivery. And so recently, I know Denver has extended or they're expanding this exclusivity piece, but you had a lot of retail operators who it seemed like they were just trying to wait out 
the period of exclusivity so that, you know, they could start their own delivery, you know, their own delivery business. So we have to, again, we have to like think through, okay, here's a good thing that you're trying to do with this exclusivity, but how does it actually work out? And that's the, that's the same thing I've, I've, you know, read about different equity license application processes, like we're giving priority to people had been disadvantaged by the war on drugs. Okay, well, they get the licenses and they have no business acumen, no, I mean, there's no training, there's no, I mean, no infrastructure, or there's somebody else that's putting in the money behind it. They fail and then that person swoops in and grabs the license. It's, um, what, what, one thing I've been uh, talking with other people about is like not having a cap on licensing. You know, like what I don't know what the reason is for the num you know limiting the number of licenses in the state to five or ten. I mean, what what would that look like? Yeah. You just didn't have a cap. Well, um, you have an example of that with Oklahoma. So Oklahoma doesn't have the cap. Um, I believe New Mexico doesn't have a cap and you have a very different experience there. Um, they also have a low uh, price point for entry. And so you have a very different experience there in terms of entrepreneurs trying to get into the market, right? I believe early on, right, a part of the cap was because this was so unknown and people were worried about, um, you know, retail locations basically uh, being like neighborhoods, like corner stores, so to speak, right? Like they were worried about, you know, um, these locations basically flooding the neighborhoods, right? Um, on the flip side, what we have is- Like if they'd be right next to the neighborhood liquor store, perhaps? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I mean, pick your, you know, pick your vice, pick, you know, pick your, um, pick your substance, if you will, right? But we know that, we know that liquor is tolerated and it is viewed differently than cannabis. And I mean, there was a huge, I mean, there's been huge PR. I mean, I'm a part of the D.A.R.E. era, right? So I remember those commercials say, no, this is your brain on drugs. This is your brain out on drugs with the fried egg and, you know, all that kind of thing. And then others, rightfully so, um, have seen, you know, family members, um, community members, you know, jailed for this substance. And so there is fear, there is trauma, there are all those things attached to it. Um, and they also understand that, like, again, cannabis is not legal. It's being regulated and is being decriminalized. But there are still, there are still, there's still this gray area, if you will, um, with consumption that we have to be careful of. So all of that still exists. Um, so I would say initially my thought was like, oh, early on, there were, you know, municipalities that were worried about, well, how does this thing look? Uh, but we've seen as recently as the regulation, um, regulatory efforts in New Jersey, where you still had about 60 to 70% of municipalities that opted out from allowing cannabis businesses to operate in their locations. So I guess we can't make that argument anymore in terms of um, the fear of being first and the fear of it being unknown. Um, but it definitely is a, it's a, a dangerous place to be, I would say, and an unfortunate place to be. 
Um, one, because I mean, we're seeing this in California where supply and demand are not matching. And so you have the cultivation of, of cannabis, of flower and of, of, of material um, that is, is out, you know, they're out producing the locations that they actually have to sell to because California is one of those states where um, a super majority of their municipalities opted out, right? So there are pockets that can have cannabis businesses, but the vast majority of the state cannot, um, which is doing, it's wreaking havoc on, uh, on, on, the, on the price per pound right now. Um, and you have a lot of those small farmers, you have a lot of those small cultivators uh, who, who are going out of business, right? Who can't, are not able to stay afloat. So it sounds to me like um, not allowing cities to opt out, municipalities to opt out, but to allow them to regulate would be a better option. Um, and I still don't think there's a need for the cap on the amount of number of licenses anymore. I understand that fear in the beginning stage, like what is this? And and but um, you know, I think what the what the uh, repressive licensing system does is support this just supports the legacy market which is what the legalization is trying to say no here we're going to have legal predictable you know healthy to the consumer products I, i mean i think you're absolutely right i mean so here's the thing um a part of what i don't think many states are have figured out is incentivizing legacy operators to transition into the regulatory into the regulated space um and to your point about these limits and the extra layer of difficulty that is created with trying to just navigate the licensing process and the cost around the licensing pro, uh, process. If I'm a legacy operator, I'm wondering why would I even do that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, you know, why would I put myself through this? Um, and most states are- And then possibly not get a license and then what? You know, and I already have my customers that have been with me for years and it all works, so. And, and so, and so like states are using the stick approach. Like we know the difference between like the carrot and the stick, right? So they're using like the stick, these sticks, um, stick approaches in terms of like, you know, um, you know, extra law enforcement crackdowns or, um, you know, fear around, um, you know, health and safety. And, and look, let me just be clear. I am all more on drugs too. Right. And, and so it's like, let me be clear, like I am all for the testing of cannabis products, you know, for the testing and for um, and for the regulation of potency and things of that nature. Like I support that. I want it. Let me just be clear about that. However, to your point, Susan, you have people. I know people. I'm sure you probably do as well, who have had a weed man for decades okay this is a person who they trust who they have a relationship with um they have never had any issues with them they know the quality 
they know the price point you know i mean again people in the legacy market are running businesses here you know what i mean like we i think oftentimes it is um they are uh i guess i would say shortchanged and and the and the scope and the efficiency of the organizations of the companies that they're running are devalued but people are running like enterprises in the legacy right so people are not pushing out shit product okay in legacy because your um standing is based on word of mouth right it's based on your customer reviews and so the last thing that you want is someone like dying from your product or someone getting sick from your product someone having anything but an awesome experience so a lot of times when we're seeing these reports in regards to um in regards to you know product that is laced and product that you know um has contaminants and things of that nature i mean i would argue that it's not really coming from the traditional legacy market it is coming more so from those gray market areas, right? Like those are people who have taken advantage of um, this space where we are in the midst of regulating and they've actually set up like brick and mortars or they actually have like physical, physical locations that people are coming to. That's not really your legacy operator. Like why would they even, why would they dive into a space where they now have like additional overhead costs? Right. If it works, don't fix it. Yeah. So, so again, like states have to really think about why would a traditional legacy operator, why would they transition into regulated? How do we make that attractive? Right. So, you know, in my, in my ideal world, we would grandfather in legacy operators and license them. Um, you know, they'd have to apply and blah, blah. But for, I mean, you would just have a licensing fee that wasn't like $100,000 or 50 or 10, you know, just a licensing fee, go through the process and just license everybody. I mean, that might be too simplistic, but I think you, I mean, you would quickly, like we talk about, we're so big on capitalism and let the market do what it wants to. I mean, if you leveled the playing field and said, here, you're growing and you got references that say you grow good stuff, you know, whatever, whatever the parameters in, I know that's ridiculous to be that simplistic, but you know, <clears throat> why can't we think of a model where we bring everybody in and then deal with whatever. Then, then if you say you can come in and it's not going to be this big financial headache and you might have to shut down because you're not going to be the one that gets the license because you didn't pay a lawyer to help write your application, right? So if you're, if you're in, then if you have no excuse for not being in, then okay, you can have your big penalties for that. But I mean, to me, it, it just seems kind of ridiculous. Um, but this podcast isn't about me getting on my high horse, but it, it's, um, I just was curious about what your thoughts on the legacy market are. Yeah, no. I, so I agree with you. I'll say, I'll say one of the things that we advocate for at the people's ecosystem and 
Um, I know we talked a little bit before we press record. So like some of the other hats that I wear, right? Some of the other organizations, but one of the things that we are um, looking at and advocating for is amnesty, right? Um, And amnesty is not something that, you know, people are kind of jumping at the bit at, right? Because what we're not talking about is leniency, right? We're not talking about leniency here. What we're talking about is a complete forgetting, right? A a complete slate wiping. And so what that would allow is legacy operators to come into the space with the money that they have amassed without worrying about being taxed, like back taxed in terms of 280E, without having to worry about um, giving up, you know, their Rolodex, you know, their black book, if you will, um, which would allow whatever product they have, of course, to be tested, you know, before it goes into the, the regulated market, but for them to actually utilize product that they already have, right? So a part, again, t- I agree with you. And a part of what we're advocating for is amnesty for legacy operators to have amnesty, to be able to come into this space. And not to say that there's no application process or no application fee to your point, um, but to one, allow them to come in at a position that is similar to what they're used to operating with, right? They don't have to come in just at ground level with nothing. And then also provide resources that allow them, right? Like, please acknowledge and honor the knowledge that these people have, but the fact that you are changing the game, you know? So they are used to operating in one world and they have essentially been operating very efficiently in that world. And now you're bringing them into this space where there's compliance and there's regulation, which may be things that they understand, but maybe not to that scale. And so provide the support so that they can transfer those skills, right? So that they just essentially kind of like learn this new language and learn the new rules of the game. Yes, I agree with that. Okay, you run for president, I'll be your beep. (laughs) look i mean you know women we figure it out right yes this conversation could be much longer and it's such a fascinating area what i would like um our listeners to know frederica is how can they work with your organization what would you know how can they best support what you're doing or get in touch with you if they want to work with you collaborate with you on things or Um, How do you operate and where do we find you? Yeah, so uh, I'm on social media. Again, I am with the People's Ecosystem. So please hit us up at thepeoplesecosystem.com. I am on LinkedIn. I actually respond to this stuff. So um, you can slide into into my my, my DMs, if you will. I'm also on IG at um, at Classic, so with two Ks. So K-L-A-S-S-I-K-84. Um, I have a bi-weekly podcast that people are blunt um, that, you know, it is solely based on uplifting um, entrepreneurs, um, educators, advocates in the space of cannabis, um, specifically those from marginalized communities. So Black, Latinx, Indigenous, as well as women. Um, and if you are a white male who wants to be on a podcast, I am going to like, I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to push you on, um, on acknowledging your privilege and um, how you operate in this space. 
Um, and if you're familiar with allyship, right? Because this is, I mean, like, look, it's time to get comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations, right? Um, so all of those places you can hit me up, you can look for us. We're on all of the, uh, on the platforms. And then in terms of organizations that I'm doing work with, I am on uh, Minority Cannabis Business Association's board. I am with CFCR. So that's the Council for Federal Cannabis um, Regulations. Um, NYCCIA, New York Cannabis Equity um, Roundtable. So all of those places, um, if you are interested in getting involved or learning more about what we are doing, how we are commenting and trying to influence policy and regulation at both the state and federal level, um, hit me up. All right. One follow-up question. Does the people's ecosystem work with um, individuals in states that are, that are either trying to change existing cannabis legislation or that are um, proposed adult use cannabis legislation? I'm in Minnesota, which has just proposed a new statute for adult use. And that, in my opinion, the, the social equity provisions are sorely lacking. Um, so uh, do you work with states? Would that be a situation where people's ecosystem would be involved or not? Is it something else? So it's, it's a situation where we can be consulted. Um, the people's ecosystem is based in Oakland, so we do a ton in in cali we also have ties um in new york so you know we stay connected to that we've done some um some consulting in arizona some consulting in illinois um so it, it a lot of times just depends on like who reaches out to us um and then definitely at the federal level you know um doing a ton of work in terms of commenting and educating our um, our elected officials um on on their efforts whether it's CAOA or the MORE Act or safe banking or things of that nature. So really just, I would say that our tentacles are probably a little bit of everywhere, but a lot of it is based on who reaches out, um, who we have relationships with, um, and you know who asks for assistance. And if we can do it, we, we try and do it. All right, thank you. Well, thank you, Frederica, for spending time talking with me today about this very important issue in the cannabis industry. And thanks for being audacious and going after it. Thank you for having me, Susan. It's been amazing. And I am so happy to be bodacious. <laughs> <laughs>